Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Celebration and one. I'll give you the rest of it after this part. Fourth down and six. And right. Fumbles. Picked up by Leon Lett. Can he go all the way? It's a 60-yard run. He's being chased by BB. Watch out. Did he get across? No, they are not. That's going to be a touchback to Buffalo. There, there's no call yet, though. He has not marked touchdown. It was knocked out of his hands and went out of bounds in the end zone, which would give it to Buffalo at the 20. And look at Lett. If they call out a no touchdown, he's going to dig a hole and crawl out of this place from there. He's going to need a big hole. The play has been ruled as a fumble in the field of play. The fumble went forward through the end zone and out of the end zone, creating a touchback. Buffalo's ball, first and ten. Leon Lett would have scored, but he slowed down to celebrate at the five-yard line, and when he did, Don Beebe stripped it away. Baby is the fastest Buffalo Bill. Hi, I'm former Buffalo Bills wide receiver Don Beebe, and you're listening to Nate and the Fellas on Circling the Wagons podcast on the Buffalo Rumblings podcast network. Because nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. Go Bills. Welcome to the Circling the Wagons podcast, a podcast discussing the Bills all year round with interviews, news, recaps, and insightful fan discussion. Here's your host and lifelong Bills fan, Nate. He was a nine-year NFL veteran wide receiver. He was drafted by the Bills in 1989 with the 82nd overall pick in the third round. He was with the Bills through all four Super Bowls and with the Green Bay Packers for two as well, becoming the first player ever to play for six Super Bowl teams. He is the author of Six Rings from Nowhere, the creator of the House of Speed, and won the first ever ESPY Award for NFL Play of the Year in 1993. We'd like to welcome Don Beebe to the podcast. Don, it is so good to finally talk to you. How are you? I'm doing great, Nathan. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I'm glad we could finally do this. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. And let's go right into the Super Bowl um, in the memories that you have there, Super Bowl 55 just happened a few weeks ago. Having been to six Super Bowls yourself, I imagine there are a lot of memories that come creeping in. What are some of the memories that stick out to you the most when you see the game being played? Well, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> I think it's the biggest thing in sports outside maybe the Olympics uh, as, a, as an individual single day um, event, but um uh, I don't think the, the those feelings will ever go away um, as far as what game day feels like, uh, you know, and especially when game day is a Super Bowl. Uh, it's the ultimate sporting event. Um, and being able to run out of that tunnel six times and, you know, 
was a, those are feelings that I'll never forget. I think it was a, you know, something that my family and I come from a very big family, um, that we still talk about today. I mean, I was talking with my sister the other day about it and she's just saying, man, I miss those days of, uh, of going to the Super Bowl. It seemed like it was a, just an extension of the season playing in six of them in nine years. My whole family really enjoyed themselves during that time. When you ran out of the tunnel for the sixth time, and you, at that time you obviously didn't know it would be your last time, did that still feel like the first time? Did you still get butterflies or goosebumps or anything? Well, it's funny. Uh, I say yes or no to that because the the yes is it's it's a Super Bowl, and those you know those feelings never go away. And and you do realize as a player this is the ultimate game. On the no part, it was a little bit different because I did know how to channel my emotions from the first one which I didn't, uh, I didn't play very good. Uh, it was something that I got caught up in the emotion of it. I got caught up in making sure my family had all their tickets and hotel rooms. And it caused a lot of extra stress that I shouldn't have taken on myself. I should have had other people do that, but I wanted to sure, make sure my family was taken care of. And then I realized there was a game to play. Um, so I learned how to channel my emotions from the first one to the last one. So in that respect, it was easier on me emotionally and be able to focus on playing a better game. Mm -hmm. What is one of your fondest memories in general of any of those Super Bowls where you look back on at this time of year and you just smile and you're, and you're happy that, that you experienced it? Well, this might thing that sounds strange, but, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of things that come to my mind there, Nathan. First, the, the greatest emotion you can ever have as a player or a coach is the game before the the Super Bowl, or I've coached in high school, the game before the state championship game, uh, which is the championship game. I was six and zero in those games, uh, and going to two high school state champion or three state championship games. I'm I'm three and zero in high school, so I'm actually nine and zero uh, in championship games. Going to the ultimate game. Uh, why do I say that's the the more emotional and a greater let's say feeling? Because when you win it. When you win the game knowing that you're going, it's like, we did it. We achieved going to this game. But when you win or lose a Super Bowl even, but even when you win it, it's kind of like as an athlete or coach, Monday comes around and you're like, now what? There's nothing to strive for, you know, for that season. It's over. The season's over. So it's almost anticlimactic, let's say, in the sense of your feelings. Um now, don't get me wrong, winning the Super Bowl is a great feeling and it is great, uh, something that you took in and as achievement as a player and coaches on the staff and even the state championship game. Um, but it, but the exhilaration that you feel for a moment that you know you're going is great. I mean, I think that's the greatest feeling. Um, so I know that sounds a little strange, but it is the truth from a player and a coach's standpoint. I'm not so sure about the fan. I think the fans' greatest feeling is when you when you actually win the whole crazy thing. Um, but as a player, we're so competitive, we're so geared and programmed to always what's the next goal, what's the next thing to achieve. That when you win it and it's over, now what? You know. Um, now the the other thing I would say is that is winning it when I won it with the Packers. I remember standing on the field, thinking to myself, "Gosh, man, I wish all the Buffalo people were with me." You know, from the owner to Jim Kelly to the, all the players to all the coaches to to um, the fans of Western New York, I wish they all could have 
felt what I felt on that day, and I felt almost guilty, Nathan, and to 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 put it bluntly, mm-hmm. uh, why me? Why not all those other people that deserved it more than I did? Uh, that's how I felt, and so I kind of just just uh, soaked it all in for as much as I could for everybody, because uh, I received a lot of phone calls and a lot of letters in the coming days after the the Packer win. Uh, that a lot of people shared that with me, and that really meant a lot. So uh, there's a couple of different feelings that I had when I think back on those Super Bowls. I appreciate you sharing that um, with us. I, I, As far as I go, so I've been following the Bills since I was younger, and I was started to come into my formative years when, you know, your teams were going to the Super Bowl. So I watched all of them all the way before, you know, I watched the Bills before that, and I've been watching them ever since. And I specifically have three memories of three important plays in the Bills Super Bowls. One being wide right, of course. Um, two being the Jeff Hostetler sack in the end zone by Bruce Smith in Super Bowl twenty five, where, you know, for some act, by some act of God, Hostetler didn't end up fumbling <laughs> that. Um, and then the third one, and really the only happy memory I have of the Bills Super Bowls is your play against the Cowboys in Super Bowl twenty seven, where in the fourth quarter you were down 52 to 17 and the Cowboys in Cowboys offensive tackle Leon Lett recovered a fumble and was going towards the end zone when you chased him down and knocked the ball out of his hands at the goal line to create a fumble and get the ball back for the Bills. Now I know you've probably been asked about this a thousand times. But what drove you that day to do what you did even if it didn't matter and did you ever expect it to have the impact that it did? Well, the first part of that um why did I do that play? Um, I don't think that's something that you actually think about. I think it's something that you just react to and who you are as a character and a person, uh, is going to ultimately be revealed in every game that you play, no matter what so, uh, sport you play. So it allows me today and for many years now to use it as an example to athletes that I train or coach and people in general, uh, that I speak to at a speaking engagement that talk about never giving up. Uh, especially during these days of COVID when everybody wants to just give up. A lot of people do, at least. It gives me an opportunity to to uh, talk about those things. And then it's believable to people because they realize who I am and what I did in the, in the Leon Lett play. Um, so what, what I always tell people is that I was fortunate because my parents, my faith, I was just instilled in me as a very young person to never give up um, and so it wasn't like I just sat there and thought about those things. I just reacted. And how you react to something is really your true character, um, especially when you have a split second to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be the, the first thing that I, I would say when it, with regards to, to that play. Um, secondly, I would say, <laughs> you know, I can't believe the miles that it's gotten. I mean, I just... When I was, you watch my reaction, Nathan. After I'm done, I mean, I get up. I'm still upset. We're getting well, fifty-two seventeen. I didn't realize it was going to be our ball. I didn't realize the the outcome of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, I just got up, adjusted my helmet after I got kneed by Leon because he kind of fell on me, <laughs> and I was just walking back to the sideline. And it really didn't mean nothing to me until two things kind of happened. I got to the sideline. Thermos Thomas came up to me, gave me a hug. And he said, Beavs, thanks, man. I appreciate you not letting those guys score again. So that was the first time. And then what it really soaked in is when I got in the locker room after the game and Ralph Wilson, the owner, literally came over to me. I was one of the first person, if not the first person, he talked to when he entered the locker room. And he said, son, he says, thanks for showing us 
showing everybody what Buffalo Bill is all about. And it became a, a mantra of who we were as a team because there's a lot of guys that didn't quit. Obviously, you don't go to four Super Bowls if you're not full of players that are never give up guys. Um, I just happened to have have that chance to run them down and the speed to do it. Uh, so, you know, I don't I don't take a lot of credit. I give the credit to my faith and my parents raising me right. Um, and, and the opportunity to do that. Now, since that day, I can honestly tell you, what are we, 20, 27 years later now? I don't even know how many years ago, mm-hmm. 93. So we're at, uh, a lot of years later mm-hmm. and, um, and we're still talking about it. I still today, every day in the mail, and I don't know if there's ever been a day that I haven't received at least one letter. But it's usually multiple letters from people around the country, teachers, parents, coaches that say and say thank you about that or mention about it or I'm talking on the radio about it uh, or a podcast like we're doing here about it every day. Uh, something re- is reminded me of that play. Can you imagine getting a letter or multiple letters every day about a play that was insignificant in a game? Um, but it meant so much to so many people. And I can't tell you how many times I've been able to use that as a metaphor to life, uh, to people. And, um, and for that reason, I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, and I'm glad I was the one because I, I don't want to take that lightly because there's a lot of people that look up to athletes. There's a lot of people that will be willing to listen to me than any other person just because of the status of a, of a professional athlete, you know, and I don't want to take that platform lightly. Uh, I want to use that to, uh, to tell people that never giving up is not an option. And, um, cause everybody knows the end result when you give up, uh, but nobody knows the end result when you don't. And that's what I, I want people to understand. Well, I think it's, it's a, it's an extremely ex- inspiring play. I mean, even now that's, that's incredible that you still get letters for it, you know, every single day. And I think a lot of people can use that in their personal lives to, to the things that they're going through, like you mentioned. And I think it speaks to your character because you mentioned, you know, I mean, just, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I mean, you just your fight to get into football in general. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy step. You weren't, you know, a five-star blue chip prospect going to a D1 school. I mean, you, you were completely out of football for three years after high school and you were hanging aluminum siding on houses. How did you end up getting into college football from there? And what, what was your journey to get to the NFL? Well, again, I, it's a, it's a, a faith-based story. Um, I had one school come after me out of high school that gave me a full ride scholarship. That was Western Illinois. I went down to Western Illinois for the two week camp. I wasn't ready for college. I was homesick. I was girl sick. And that girl's now my wife of four kids. So it was, it was worth it to leave. Um, but I went down for two weeks and I was an ex Marine drill sergeant as, as, as a head coach. It was his first year coaching and he ran it like that. Uh, got MF'd every day. I got physically kicked one day. Now again, you know, did that, did that bother me? No, not really. I mean, I obviously today the, the guy would probably get arrested, but it's a different culture today. Uh, but at that time in the early eighties, I, it, it, that didn't really bother me. It's just, I was just, wasn't ready for college. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't ready to leave home. And, and, and I'm, I was a really introverted kid. And it, those two weeks really left such a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, that for three years I worked construction, didn't even go to school, didn't play football at all. Um, 
and then three years later, I was more mature. I was ready to, to go and, and I really wanted to play, but I didn't know where to turn. And here, Western Illinois didn't contact me the first year, didn't contact me the second year, but contacts me the third year. Now I'm a head football coach in college right now. And I can assure you this, that if a kid came to me in camp left after the two week camp, I probably wouldn't contact him anymore, but definitely wouldn't do it after three years. I wouldn't even know who the kid was after three years. Uh, so, but yet what Western Illinois contacts me back. I mean, it is very bizarre, crazy things that happen that that's where my faith comes in. I think God just opened up doors. And, um, and so I went back to Western Illinois, only had one year, year of eligibility back left. I didn't know my time clock was being chewed up because I started. Uh, in 83 and now it's now 87. And so I went back, played the one year and I was out of eligibility, but some scouts timed me in the 40 and, you know, I just happened to get timed and, um, and they said they'd like to see me play at a whole nother level, which is the NAI. They wanted to see one more year. So I did. I went to Shadron, Nebraska and the head coach Brad Smith at Shadron recruited me five years previous when I was in high school because he was at Western Illinois. So there was the connection. Uh, Shadron was 15 hours away from home. Last place I wanted to go was the end of the earth, which is Shadron, Nebraska. <laughs> and I love Nebraska, so don't get me wrong. I mean, yeah. I love the people out Shadron. I go back almost every year to run a golf tournament. So I, it grew on me. Let's just put it that way. Kid from Chicago going to Shadron. But, um, so I, I played one year at, at Shadron, had a great year. And, and then, uh, my life changed really, Nathan, when I got invited to the combine. After my season of Shatter, Nebraska, I only played two years of college football, but yet I got invited to the combine. I mean, think about this for a second. How in the world? They only take 300 guys now to the combine in Indy. How's a guy from Shatter going to get invited to that? It looking like me. I mean, come <laughs> on. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but I get invited and then I go and I have a unbelievable camp or combine. I set the record in the 40. I ran a 4.25 that year. Deion Sanders ran a 4.25. We we tied it the same year, 1989. And that record stood for 17 years until Chris Johnson broke it in 2006, I believe, or seven. He ran a 4.23. And now a guy by the name of Dodd, I think his name is, that ran a 4.22. But that had to happen to me in 1987, 1988, uh, you know, from Shattering. Because if I go in there and run a 4.4, which, you know, several guys can do, Nobody's going to take me from Shadron. But when you break the all-time record and then you do the, all the other drills and catch the ball great, and um, that just doesn't happen. And then I land up being the first pick of the Bills in the third round. But what also you probably should know in this bizarre story is when I went to the Combine, I was so naive that I didn't have an agent. I didn't even know what an agent was, didn't know I needed an agent. Uh, I didn't have any running shoes, okay, because I couldn't afford them. Uh, we could barely afford mac and cheese and tuna for dinner mm-hmm. when, when my wife and I, because we were married my last year at Shadron there. But so I ran in the 40 in in the shoes that I walked into the building with, and they were my old ASIC shoes from high school. Wow. And this these were the shoes that I used to go fishing in a lot and, and, and outdoor activities. And in the right sole of my right shoe is half unglued. So when I walk, it flopped. And when I ran, it really flopped. Nathan, mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy that I wore these flopping fishing shoes, still talked about today, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, and ran a 425 in them. So 
those things had to happen for my life to change. And I, and it did overnight with literally in a three day combine, my life changed. And when I got back to Shatter and I had to do 21, there were 28 teams at that time in 1988. And I had to do 21 personal workouts. 21 teams came to Shatter and wanted to put me through a test. Because they didn't believe that I ran a 4.25. <laughs> so it was quite interesting in the spring of 1989 at Shadow, Nebraska. Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds – I mean, how do you your, – your life almost sounds like, at least your career to this point, sounds almost like Rocky, right? He was a million – his whole life was a million <laughs> one chance. It feels like your, your journey just to get to the NFL at this point, without even talking about getting to the Super Bowls, was like a million to one chance at this point. <laughs> Yeah, they, uh, it actually, people say it's really, uh, Rudy that won a Super Bowl story. <laughs> so it's, I get compared to Rudy a little bit as well. So, and I know Rudy, he's, he's a pretty funny guy, but, um, anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, I, speaking of your speed, I mean, that's an incredible 40 time. I mean, how did you become that fast in 1989? Was it pure talent? Was it training? A combination of both? Yeah. I think it, I think, first of all, you know, in a business that I used to run, House of Speed, that trains athletes, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you can train and, and, you know, make a athlete, boy or girl, run faster or jump higher or cut quicker. I, I, we've done it for years, right? But to run a 4-2, you're going to have to have some type of genetic. I, you know, I can't take every kid and make them a 4-2. That's impossible. In fact, I don't know if we've ever made a kid a 4-2. That's how hard it is to do. Um, but to take a kid from a four seven to a four five, it's not that hard. Just a lot of hard work on their end, but but from a science standpoint and a genetic standpoint, we can achieve that. Uh so yes, I, I had a very fast mom and dad, uh, and I had athletic, you know, genes in our family. Uh, but I took that and really enhanced it when I got into uh college especially. Uh I really trained hard. So let's talk about the current Bills team. This last 2020 season, um, the Bills, you know, they didn't make the Super Bowl like you had before previously, but they made it to the AFC Championship. They lost to the Chiefs there. I mean, in all accounts, it was a really great season for the team. Um, you know, I, what are some of your thoughts and takeaway from the the Bills 2020 season? And, and did you did you like what you saw from uh, from the product that uh, Sean McDermott and Josh Allen had put on the field? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, and I believe this is to be true. The last time the Bills lost uh, before this year uh, an AFC championship game was in 1988, I believe, against Cincinnati. Um, and shortly thereafter, they went to four Super Bowls. So I think it's something that it, obviously this is a, a team that is being rebuilt. Um, I think – um, he's got it going in the right direction. Uh, they have all the tools, let's say, to win it. They have the quarterback, which is critical, maybe the most critical, uh, because you look at all the championship teams this year, they're f- the four of them. They're the four best quarterbacks in the game mm-hmm. right now. Mahomes, Brady, okay, um, Rogers. Rogers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now. And so, I mean, the top four quarterbacks. Um, you could say Drew Brees, but Drew's kind of at the end of his deal right now, and he's he didn't play the best year. I mean, so the four best were in the championship game. So you have to have that guy. I mean, you think about this: how many how many teams won a Super Bowl with an average quarterback? You can count them on one hand. Mm-hmm. 
okay, without mentioning teams because I don't want to embarrass the quarterback, but there's been only a few, and those teams had phenomenal defenses. So some of the best ever. So you need a quarterback, and I think they got that guy. So it's going to be interesting to see how they keep putting the the, the guys around them. Um, I think they got to, I think they, you know, they got to get the running game going a little bit more. Um, it was still good. I don't get me wrong. Um, and the defense has got to shore up just a little bit more too as well. But they get a couple key cog players there, and don't be shocked that they'll be in the Super Bowl next year even. Well, now I have to ask you this because um, you played with two of my favorite quarterbacks of of all time, mm-hmm. and Jim Kelly and Brett Favre, and I see a lot of Josh Allen with those guys. Maybe I mean Brett Favre, everyone loves it because he was a gunslinger, and you know he mm-hmm. played on the field as if he was as if he was a kid. Obviously, you know that's just you know some of the some of the things that we saw. I mean, do you see any of Josh Allen in, in those two guys with their with the ability that they have, the arm that they have, the ability to read mm-hmm. the field, and you know just just the not being afraid to check these the quarterbacks that you played with weren't weren't kind of guys that were just like let me check down for the safe play like they went after it um and a lot of the times it was to their benefit because they were so good i mean do you see any of that in josh allen when you watch him play well from a from a talent standpoint and his arm and what he can do on the field yes i don't know josh allen outside of that on off the field and what you know who he is as a person um, but I will say this to, to beat Jim Kelly in that area is going to be hard to do. Jim Kelly is one of the, the greatest people you'll ever meet. You know, and Jim used to open up his house after every game and there'd be hundreds of people there, you know, people he didn't even know, but he just opened up his house, uh, because it was part of the chemistry and the camaraderie that we had and the closeness as the team that bonded over those years. That's what got us to four Super Bowls. Okay, uh, and, and the, the success that we had because, you know, our leader, Jim Kelly, was just a great person. Uh, one of the most loyal guys you'll ever meet. Uh, so if, if Josh has those categories along with the talent on the field that you see, yeah, then I could see some longevity uh, years to come for the Bills of making Super Bowl runs as well. Um, you know, I think Josh actually has great feet. I mean, he can run. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Jim was strictly pretty much a pocket guy. Brett could do some stuff outside the pocket, but neither one of those guys were going to beat you in a foot race. Um, whereas Josh can run. So, uh, you know, it, but to me, I'll be honest with you, Nathan, what, what really makes a team great is, is that the 20 eyeballs in that huddle that are looking at the quarterback just believe in them. Uh, the team believes in them. The, the, the fans believe in them. The whole, the whole department and, and organization that believes in this guy. Um, I think Josh is well on his way to do that. Um, and he certainly was a lot better than he was the year before. So if he keeps trending in that area, yeah, you can see a run of the Super Bowls here for the Buffalo Bills, but it's harder to keep a team together nowadays than it was back in the nineties, you know, with, with the free agency and the salaries and everything going on. It's just harder to keep that nucleus. I mean, I think we had a nucleus of, I want to say, 24, 5, or 6 guys that went to all four Super Bowls. That's really hard to do nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that takes a lot of savvy work from the organization. So we'll see if they can do that. 
Well, you, you talk about, you know, the, the relationships that you had with those guys in the 90s with Jim Kelly being the leader and, and 24, 25 guys that just all fell in line. Now, some people would argue that, you know, culture doesn't matter and stuff like that. You know, Sean McDermott's come in and basically made a, a huge point to say, you know, the process, the culture, it matters to love each other, to care about each other. When you hear people say that talent is all that really matters and good coaching do you scoff at that and say because you've been on Super Bowl teams and you've won the Super Bowl? I mean, do, yeah. do, how how important is culture in the grand scheme of things, and and is it so yeah. much more important than some people some people would say it is? I, I scoff at that big time. Okay, um, I say just the opposite, and this may sound shocking, but people, you can throw X's and O's and talent really kind of out the window. Now, don't get me wrong with the talent part. You got to have talented guys. I mean, they wouldn't be in the NFL if they weren't talented. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Uh, but absolutely hands down, the number one thing I go for when I'm scouting or recruiting in the college level is character. I'm going to go get guys of high character. Um, now that's, there's a variety of things that I look for when I'm looking at character, but if they don't fit into those and check those boxes, they ain't coming to Rory University. I can tell you that right now. I don't care how good they are. Uh, they just will not fit in. They're not going to, uh, and I can mention guys names in the NFL that are disruptive guys that have kind of tore teams apart. Um, and it's been all about them. You know, how many Super Bowls have they won? Uh, it's just, it, you have to have that ingredient. So to me, great coaches have the ability to change the culture. That's what makes them great coaches. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I look at, you know, you can go on and you can go way back to the Vince Lombardi's of the world. I mean, do you think Vince Lombardi had a, a great playbook of X's and O's? <laughs> it's pretty laughable, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, but what did what did Vince do? Man, they believed in Vince, man. Vince changed the culture. Uh, he changed the, the, the way they thought. Um, and I think that's a, a great, you know, example. Uh, I know a lot of guys that are smart guys in football. You talk about X's and O's. I mean, they go to the board and they can draw up anything and, you know, talk way above people's heads. But they can't coach a lick. Mm -hmm. They can't get that average player to play, you know, great. And they can't get that great player to play Pro Bowl status. That's what great coaches do. Great, and they're great human beings. Marv Levy, greatest, one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. Okay. Andy Reid, one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. There's a reason they're successful. Okay. Um, and we can go on and on and talk about those things. Absolutely. If I'm running a team or if I'm running a school and I'm going to, and I'm going to go recruit a coach, no doubt that's what I'm looking for in a coach. Wow. So let's talk about your son, Chad, who is in the NFL mm -hmm. right now. Now, not be, not many people may know this, but your, your son plays uh, for the Minnesota Vikings. Um, tell us about Chad and what that experience has been like watching as a father, watching his son come into the NFL. Well, let me just say this. First of all, it's a lot easier as a, as a player <laughs> emotionally. It's a lot harder as a parent emotionally, uh, you know, because it's out of my control. You know, as a player, it's everything's in your control and how you perform and how you play and how you study and eat and do all those things. Well, you know, when you go and you sit in stands, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So you just, you just sit there and watch. And uh, it's a lot more nerve-wracking. But there's a lot more enjoyment, too, uh, when he does have the success that he has I get great joy out of that as his dad, uh, other than I did as a player. Because uh, as I said before, the player is always like, okay, what's tomorrow? What what can I achieve tomorrow? What can I do? As a fan, and that's what parent is, as a fan, their biggest fan, 
uh, you take great enjoyment of your kid's success. Um, one thing I will say about my son, Chad, is uh, this may sound shocking, but he, I think he's the toughest individual I've ever been around. I've seen this kid play games with broken collarbones, broken ribs, play games now. Okay, and if I wouldn't have seen the x-rays myself, I'd have never believed it. Somebody tell me, I'm like, there ain't no way the kid, somebody's playing with a broken collarbone. It's impossible. Well, he did. Okay, and I was a coach of the game. And it was a state championship game. I had to pull him out of the game. I couldn't take it anymore. You know, seeing him out there trying to, trying to perform. He's had 10 straight years, 10 of reconstructive or major injury that has kept him out of games from his sophomore year all the way until second year in the league. Okay. Just in high school, his sophomore year broke in foot. His junior year, he broke his collarbone preseason, broke his other collarbone semifinal game before the state championship game. His senior year, he broke his arm. In through college, he's reconstructive knee surgeries, uh, you know, you name it. Shoulder, broke his other arm, has a, has a plate and 18 screws in that arm. So, and yet he still finished his third year now. This was his first year, his 11th year that he finished the whole year and played the whole year and every game and wasn't, wasn't hurt at all. Now, <laughs> Nathan, I don't know about you, but that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, my story's crazy. That story, you talk about persevering and never giving up. That's just embedded in that kid. Uh, he's, he's, he's just a great human being. I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud of what he stands for. I'm very proud of how he plays the game. He's one of the most humble guys you'll ever know. Uh, completely unselfish, all about the team. And he's, and he's a very talented kid. My prayer is that he can keep staying healthy like this year. Because I think as he grows in his career even more, I think he's going to be pretty successful because the kid's pretty good. He's a great slot receiver. Uh, he's just got to stay away from the injury bug. Wow. I, I, I have to ask you, you know, you, you mentioned how you're the head coach of Aurora University. Um, you retired from professional football in 1998. I mean, what, what keeps you busy post-football life and, uh, and what are you up to nowadays? Well, I had, I had opportunities to go coach in the NFL in 2005. I had opportunities to coach at bigger colleges, um, through the years. Uh, I coached at high school for 14 years at Aurora Christian High School. Uh, last year, 2019 was my first year as a college coach at Aurora University. You know, I'm not driven by money. I'm not driven by, you know, prestige or what, you know, what things can offer me. Um, I just felt like my calling was high school all those years. And now it's here at Aurora university. I'm actually having the time of my life. I love it here. I don't see myself leaving here. Uh, I, I seriously look at my life and say to myself, I don't think I've ever worked a day in my life. I love every day that I work or if you want to call it that. Um, and I enjoy what I do. So, uh, I think if I would have went to other levels or different things, it would have taken up things that were more important to me and that's my wife and kids and my faith um and boy i got four great kids and i got a great wife and i got a great life so those are more important than other things material things you could say for me not saying it's wrong that other guys have done that because if they feel that that's right for them then great good for them Uh, i just know for myself I, I'm glad I didn't do that because I would have missed out on a lot of things that my kids were able to do. Um, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. 
Now, you also mentioned earlier in our conversation about you do some speaking engagements and, and you do motivational speaking. Um, I love talking to people that do mo- motivational speaking. I talked with your former teammate, John Davis, a few weeks ago on the podcast about that. Um, you know, I have to imagine that your speech or the theme of your speeches has to do with never giving up and persevering. I mean, who, what's, th- is, is it, did I get that right? And, and who is, the t- your target audience is it you know younger yeah. athletes or is it old people adult I mean I could see this at, at any age at any age in life yeah. that this would be a, a tremendous um, discussion to have with someone like yourself. Yeah, you know I never thought I was a book guy or a movie guy. Okay, I mean I was just a guy. You know I wasn't Brett Favre, Jim Kelly, uh, or Thurman Thomas or Bruce Smith. You know, but I am a guy that people can really relate to. I'm just a common man. Um, and, and so because of that and going to six Super Bowls, I, I was, you know, really talked into writing a book. So six rings from nowhere. And it is six rings because whether you win or lose, I, you know, you get a ring. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't win six Super Bowls. I get it, but six championship rings is still a ring. And that's why we named it that. Mm-hmm. And I came from nowhere and it does relate to anybody. Um, I can stand in front of audiences and relate to anybody. Uh, I, I, I speak at marriage, you know, events. I speak at a lot of churches. I speak at a lot of business functions. Um, and everybody in that audience needs to hear a never give up story. And, and, and so I, I, you know, I typically do 20 to 30 events a year. Now with the COVID thing, that's kind of hampered that obviously for everybody but we'll get back into that i've got some already scheduled for this year i enjoy them i love traveling i love i love speaking and inspiring people i think it's part of my calling along with coaching um and it just gives me great pleasure to to be able to speak about the book that i wrote and and um and uh and tell and tell people about the story so you know, hey, listen, before, when I die and I stand before the Lord, he ain't going to care about how many wins as I, I had as a coach at high school or college. He's going to, he's going to care about the, the people that I get to speak to, whether it's a one-time event or it's people that I coach and train on a daily basis. Uh, those are the ones that are going to be accountable to me. Uh, and so I don't ever take that lightly, Nathan, at all. As, as far as, you know, you mentioned, you know, in depth about your son, Chad, and, and your other children. And, and I imagine that there comes, now, now I, have, I have two small children. I know a lot of people listening to this have children or someday will have children. I mean, how, what advice would you give to parents as far as raising your children or are there any guidelines or any inspiration or motivation that you can give to people so that they end up more like a Chad or, or something, mm-hmm. something to that effect? Well, I mean, the first, again, I, I talk about my faith, but I mean, it, 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 we pray a lot. My wife and I pray a lot. Okay. Um, outside of that, I would say the, the, the greatest commodity that you could give your kid is your time. Uh, I think we get so wrapped up as parents to try to, you know, make more money or, you know, buy an extra car or house or whatever those things are, material things. Um, as a, you know, as important as some people might think those are, that's not the most important. Uh, the most important thing you can give your kid is your time. Um, I'll never forget a story by Josh McDowell, I believe it was. And he's, he's a, a faith-based writer and of books and such. And I remember he was 
preparing in his den. He's tell, I heard him tell the story once. He was preparing to, for a, a big upcoming event that he had to speak at. And he was in the den working on some stuff and he could hear his son who was out in the, you know, the kitchen wanting to go out in the backyard to play, you know, a little with the ball or whatever they were doing, shoot hoops, whatever. And, uh, and his son was calling out and James says, you know, son, I can't do it. I got to get this thing done today because I got to travel tomorrow to speak. And his wife came to the door and he says, if you want to spend some time with your son later in life, you need to spend some time with him now. And it's like cats in the cradle song. I mean, it's just so true that I, I never wanted to forget that. And so ever since my three daughters and my son were young, they had all the dad they could get. And, um, and today my son is my best friend and my daughters are around all the time. And, and, uh, we, we have a very close relationship and friendship with our kids. And I think it's because of, I gave them so much time and so did my wife. So I think that would be the most important I could tell people. Wow. You know what, Don? I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Circling the Wagons podcast. Where can they find your book, Six Rings from Nowhere? And where can they find you on social media? Yeah, so the best thing, if you, you know, to order the book or to, um, you know, have me come speak at an event or something, it's, there's two ways. One, they can go to donbb.com. It's probably the easiest way. Or they could just call uh, our number, which is 630 466. 0082, my number, 0082, and um, speak with Barb, and she'll help them uh, find out anything that they are wanting to know more about my story or have it, have me at an event. Well, I definitely, I ordered your book. Um, I've read it, um, Six Rings from Nowhere. I got the autograph copy because, of course, I had to. Um, what And as far as social media, are you on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook? Yeah, I, I do Twitter, Don BB at NFL. Uh, I don't I'm not much of a social media person. Mm-hmm. Uh, used to have Facebook. I got rid of that. Uh, it's, you know, social media has gotten out of control. Let's put it, let's just put it bluntly, Nathan. I yep. mean, it's just crazy. Yep. Uh, I don't have time for crazy. <laughs> so, um, you know, I don't do much in the social media thing. I, I, I email, you know, I'm an old school guy, so people can email me or just go to donbb.com is probably the best way. Wow. Well, you know, we certainly appreciate you coming on. I mean, this has just been an unbelievable conversation. Um, I'm so glad that we could finally do this. Best of luck in the future with everything at Aurora University and everything you do. And we look forward to talking to you again sometime. Sounds good, Nathan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Circling the Wagons podcast. Download and subscribe to us in your favorite podcast service. Email us at ctwpod at gmail.com. That's Charlie Tango Whiskey Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ctwpod. And most importantly, go Bills! Nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. Nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills, mate. <laughs>